you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money Podcast, the show that brings you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome to Josh and Colin's Seesaw on the Budget. This is what I see. Is that what you saw? So, Josh, I'll throw it to you first. You you tell me what you see, and I'll tell you what I saw. Yeah, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. So, normally, we sit down and, and hash out a little bit of a rough outline for what we're going to talk about. Today, we just said, well, let's talk about the budget. You come up with five things that were interesting to you. I'll come up with five things that were interested to, to me. And we'll sit down and we'll talk about it. We'll discuss. Not no preparation whatsoever. So we're we're throwing ourselves in here cold. <laughs> and you're gonna go first. So impressed with you. And I know for a fact you've got more than five things on your list. So don't lie to our listeners. Yeah, well, it's tough. I know we both poured over 739 pages of this federal budget. Every word we looked at it in detail, every footnote, every note in the margin. And we both have tons to talk about. So uh, we both have more than, than five things on our list, but we'll try to keep it concise for everybody. So first and foremost, I think this is maybe the most significant sort of long-term part of the budget. And that's some of the reform and the push that they're doing on childcare. And so just at a very high level, what they've said is that over the next five years, they want to push for a $10 per day cost for your children in daycare. And so that's over the next five years, by the end of 2022, so let's say a year and a half from now, they wanna see a 50% reduction uh, reduction in average fees for childcare over that period of time. I think this is awesome. I think this is extremely important. I think childcare, speaking to people that I know that have young kids, uh, that they're dealing with this, I think it's it's can be exorbitantly expensive. and I think economically speaking, I'm going to put my economist hat on, we want people to be working. And the fact that childcare is so expensive is a disincentive for some people to work. It's better off for them to stay home and just take care of the children than it is to go out and get a job. And that has some real implications for the economy as a whole. So from the idea of this should get more people out there making more money, spending more money, more tax revenue, et cetera, et cetera, bolstering the economy, I think it's a, a lovely thing. What do you think, Colin? Oh, it's a fabulous idea, like cinnamon farts and, and, and bubblegum trees. You know, but the problem is you're pushing on a rope. You got the government trying to overstep its mandate because this is largely something that's done at the provincial level. And a lot of what was in the budget from what I read involves the provinces also ponying up. So the federal government's going to kick in, but then the provinces have to agree and kick in. Provinces don't necessarily have the money because they're trying to pay for that old healthcare stuff. And I have a five-year plan when you have an election coming up next year. Come on, just stop that. You get to have a one-year plan. That's all you get. And then if you win the election, you can have another year. Don't make a five-year plan when you got a one-year mandate. I fully agree, and I think that childcare should be less expensive. We need to support the families in the workforce. That's a, that absolutely, you, you, know, you can't be a human being and think that's a wrong thing. 
but the way that they're trying to do it makes no sense. I, I hope, I hope that this moves the rock. I hope that they, they're, they're able to actually make some progress on this because you're right. This is a very valuable thing. It should be important. We should pay attention to it, but we've got to be competent while we're paying attention to it. We can't just announce things with big dollar figures in the years that we don't have control over. That's not helping. Yeah, well, and that's very true. I think what's made me a little bit more encouraged on the, the subject is that they're taking from the model that Quebec has put in place. And the Quebec model, while everything that I saw data-wise has been fairly successful, and one of the, the good data points is that the number of women in the workforce, the percentage of women in the workforce in Quebec is, is much higher than the rest of Canada. So obviously they're doing something right there and stealing from that model or borrowing from that model makes some sense. But you know, maybe you're right. Maybe it should be the provinces uh, that are looking after all this and having it regulated at a federal level is just going to work out uh, to be a mess as so many other things. We will see. Yeah. So what's first on your list? Well, the first thing on my list is something that's not on the list. There were no changes to capital gains inclusion rates and there was no changes to the taxation of your principal residence. So sometimes the biggest thing in the budget is what's not in the budget. So that was the number one takeaway I took. Now listen, if you will all write this down, stop trying to figure out what comes next because you are going to worry about, in the entire history of the human species, worrying about anything's never made it better. Yeah. anticipating things long before they happen are going to cause, and this is just another example. And think about it, they're a year out from an election, they're not going to do something that's really hugely unpopular, and they're certainly not going to do it suddenly. And I've got other points about that, but I'm not going to steal my own thunder. So Josh, what say you? Well, we came into this knowing that there'd be some overlap in what, what we had on our list, and it took only two items to get to it. And it's funny, we both had something on our list that wasn't on the list. So I, we just spent way too much time together, I, I think is, is what it comes down to. But th this is something we, we talk about a lot, you and I, especially over the last month or so. And it's just, you can't or you shouldn't uh, maybe spend too much time planning for something that hasn't happened yet. And as we can both agree, tax planning is extremely valuable and makes a ton of sense, but trying to speculate on what one government or the next institutes in terms of tax code, tax law, that's going to be an impossibility. And you're going to end up banging your head against the table more often than not. So um, I, I think if we look at the the situation a little bit longer term, I, I'm actually not surprised that they didn't introduce something this time. because an election is probably coming up in the next year or so. And jacking up people's taxes before an election, probably not a recipe to get reelected. So the speculation, again, here we are again, speculating. The speculation is that now, if they get reelected, then they'll really push for, for some changes to the tax code. Now, the two things that were talked about most prevalently, I would say, would be increases to the capital gains inclusion rate. And I think there is some legitimate concern that that could be increased. I'm not saying you go out and you re rearrange your whole life based on that idea, but I think that's, that's a distinct possibility because if they do push that through, whatever government pushes it through, there's less of an impact to the masses, I would say, than with some of the other tax 
code changes that they've that they've floated as an idea. And I think the bigger one that I have a very hard time thinking that will ever go through is uh, principal gains, uh, principal residence capital gains tax. Right now, your principal residence is excluded from capital gains. For them to institute something like that, you're just giving a major punch to the gut to so many Canadians out there, especially ones that have a large part of their wealth tied up in real estate. Well, the challenge is it's really easy to get a whole bunch of people to listen to you. It's like, you know, the government's coming after your house. They're coming after my house. Yes, they're coming after your house. It's really compelling stuff when people talk like that. And when people talk like that, people repeat what gets said. And then, what do you mean they're going to tax my house? When's that happening? Well, it could happen this budget. It's going to happen this budget. It just spreads like wildfire. Every time a budget's coming up, there's at least a little bit of that playing out in the background. So, again. Oops, it didn't happen this time. I'm sure it'll happen next time. Yeah. All right, we'll all right Josh, go, go to the next thing on your list and we'll see if, if, if I have it on my list. Yeah, so this, this is one I think has pretty wide ranging implications as well. Increases to old age security for those over 75. And so th there's two things that I've really heard here is the first is that anybody that's over the age of 75 by June, 2022 is going to get a one-time $500 payment. Nice. The other thing is that anybody over the age of 75 going forward and collecting OAS is going to get a 10% bump to their OAS. So starting year one, I guess the 2022 OAS year, that would be about $760 uh, per year in, in uh, extra income to those folks. Now, this is one that I really have a hard time understanding. Aside from the fact that I think they're trying to buy themselves a few votes, the liberals have floated the idea of, well, hey, this is going to help pay for some of those care costs as you get older. Have they looked at what long-term care costs? Do they have any clue? Because I have. We've helped a lot of clients through this. We've had a, helped a lot of children of clients through this. 760 bucks per year, maybe that gets you an extra week of long-term care. Other than that, you're SOL. So this to me, it it just hurts my soul because I know that as a taxpayer, I'm going to be paying for this for the rest of my life. Well, and, and this was on my list, by the way, because you know it's an important distinction to draw. Canada Pension Plan, there's actually a reserve. There's like trillions of dollars invested to pay that. That's that, that's concrete. You know, the Canada Pension Plan, I think, is the smartest thing that's been done by any government anytime, anywhere. And we have it, and that's fantastic. Old age security comes out of re revenue, current revenue. And you know that that's nice, as long as more people are working than who aren't, but demographically, that's gonna start to change. A couple of governments ago, they started talking about old age security and saying, hey, you know, maybe we need to push it off and have it start at age 70, you know, in order to make it sustainable. Well, the liberals got in and said, oh no, we're rolling that back. Well, that's fine to roll it back, but you've made the, the future change bigger when it does happen. And this, I think, is just creating a bigger bubble that as demographics change, because again, demographics are predictable. People, everybody gets one year older every year. It's going to cause more and more pressure. So while I'm a thousand percent behind the idea that we need to make long-term care more affordable and the government's got a role to play in that, I don't see this as the way to do it. And I, I'm afraid that this is going to set expectations in people. People are going to begin to count on this money. And if it ever gets disrupted at any point in the future, it's going to cause some real harm. 
So I think this one has got the potential because I don't think it's sustainable. It's got the real potential to cause some harm. And that's what bothers me about this one. Yeah, I think you're a little bit too guarded with this one. This one's asinine. We already have something called guaranteed income supplement for low income seniors, right? And again, you know, we're all for supporting people that are struggling to put food on the table every month, especially if you're over the age of 75. That's what GIS does. You don't need to give people more money at the age of 75 through OAS because people already have that support in place. And if you want to bolster that support, then go directly to the source. That's GIS. Again, they're buying votes. They're they're sort of taking the shotgun shell and blowing it across as, as wide a swath of people as they can. People have a couple extra bucks in their pocket and think about the, that when uh, the, the checkbox comes around for the next election and the liberals are there. They gave me 500 bucks, 700 bucks a year. Well, I'm going to put my checkbox next to them. I kind of like having an extra little bit of cash. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm completely out on this one. <laughs> well, good. At least you come down on one side of the issue. <laughs> What's next on your list? Luxury tax, baby. So, and again, this is instructive for what it wasn't as well as what it was. So they went after boats, planes, and expensive cars. Very popular with the general electorate. And you know what? Not a bad target. It's, it's, it's similar to some of the Scandinavian countries and their luxury taxes and that kind of regime. And, and that's you know all well and good. The interesting part here for me was that it doesn't start till January of next year. So here is what I have to believe would be an incredibly popular tax that very few people would get to complain about. Certainly not enough people would complain about it to change an election. And they still put it off like eight months. They still waited and they gave everybody, like, now if you, got, if you got that boat on order, just make sure you pay for it you know, before January of next year. So that again tells me the appetite for the government to make changes to taxation in a sudden manner that would not allow somebody to react. So, you know, it's not just what they did, it's how they did it. And again, this is going to be the, you know, it's gonna cause all kinds of gamesmanship for sure, but it, it, it is targeted with the people who can probably afford to pay it. And, you know, I think that it's a reasonable way for the government to raise money. So I, I think there's, you know, I don't have an objection per se to, to the tax. I just find it interesting in how it was rolled out. That I found instructive. Yeah, I'm kind of ambivalent on this one. So what they did was for vehicles and aircraft over $100,000 and for boats over $250,000, they're gonna ding you with a tax on 10% of the purchase price or 20% of the value above those numbers, whatever is the lesser of those two calculations. So. Seems like, again, you kind of said it's fairly reasonable. It is a lot of money for some of these folks that are that are playing in this uh, this income bracket. So it's not a small sum of money by, by any means. And my first thought was, well, people are going to find ways to game the system. And they probably will. They right. have said that it's going to affect purchases and leases. So my first thought was, well, if you get a lease, then you don't need to worry about this. Seems like they are smart enough to think of that part anyway. Um, the other thing is the GST or HST is on top of the luxury tax adjusted price. So you got tax on tax here. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's uh, one little fun tidbit for you. But I mean, like you said, it's going to be a relatively small number of people 
Um, I'm a little bit, a little bit uh, weary of, of taxing the rich to such a significant extent, if we want to call it that, because they already pay a pretty significant share of the overall uh, tax in the country. Um, so at some point they're going to get a little bit fed up and we don't want to drive those, those wealthy people who are paying most of our, our taxes on a, on a year to year basis to, you know, the Cayman Islands or somewhere down there where the weather's nicer and uh, the tax situation is a lot more accommodating. Well, stay tuned to your $99,000 car that comes with a compulsory $30,000 maintenance package. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just thinking outside the box. <laughs> so Josh, what's next on your list? Well, I'm gonna go to the federal minimum wage. And there's been some talk of them increasing the federal minimum wage. It was in the budget to $15 now. And so apparently this is gonna affect something like 26,000 people. Now that, that seems like a relatively small number to me, but. Um, tiny, a tiny number. Tiny, yeah, when you compare it to the overall population. I, it's another thing where I'm, in principle, I'm, I'm in favor of increases to minimum wage. And I think that done in a measured and calculated way, an intelligent way over time, it, it can actually help. Uh, there can continue to be progress in, in sort of that segment of, uh, of the market and segment of the population. But one thing I want to point out, again, I'm going to put my, my economics hat on and go back to my first year economics course and tell you that when price goes up, that means the demand for something is going to go down. So if you have the price of labor and maybe you're a restaurant owner, um, something like that, where you have a lot of, of sort of lower wage or lower income earners, if the price is going up for that labor, you're automatically going to demand less of that. So if some of these, these increases are too aggressive, and I'm not saying this is too aggressive, at some point you may see a bump in, in your unemployment because of it. And that's one thing that, that I would be concerned about, something that just warrants a little bit of, of monitoring, because I think what they've done in the US is, is they're pushing for the same number, but from a much lower base. So it's gonna be a much more drastic change for uh, some of those businesses in the US than it will be for, for businesses up here in Canada. Well, this is one of those those kind those times that yeah yeah there, there's a valid conversation economically and from a social equity perspective on having this conversation. You know, Justin Trudeau was on TV today talking about the paid sick leave and how that's strictly on the provinces because only three percent of the workplaces are federally mandated. Ninety-seven percent of the workplaces are under provincial jurisdiction. So when the feds stand up and say we're going to bring in a minimum wage for all Canadians. Yeah, all 26,000 of them, because the, only 3% of the workplaces are affected. This is, just a, this is just a line that they're going to use in the next election, talking about how they brought a minimum wage in. They didn't. They, they, you can't have it both ways. You, you, you can't come up with a budget that talks about this like it's a big thing, and then when the, the paid sick leave issue comes up, currently say, oh, that's not us, eh? that's the provinces. That's legit. It is a provincial jurisdiction, and this is the problem. The, the, the governments need to stick to their back their, their backyard. What are they responsible for? And just because something is popular, just because people want something, if it's outside of, of what you do, doesn't mean you should pretend to give it to them. The, to me, this is whitewashing an important issue. This is an important issue, but it, it can't be addressed federally. 
So I, I just need to be clear, Colin. Are you saying that politicians are sometimes contradictory? They're sometimes uh, opportunistic on which stand they plan they, they take at a given moment. Yeah, rhetorical question. We didn't need to go there. <laughs> Let's That's move on. Fine. That's fine. <laughs> What's next? Green bonds. Did you see ah, the green bonds? Yeah, I, I saw that. So that's an exciting one. Yeah, again, this is uh, here's my problem. I'm all in favor of saving the planet. The green, I'm in. I, I, I got kids. I hope to have grandkids. I think that that's the right thing to do. For the government to just spontaneously announce green bonds, trusting them to figure out how to allocate this money in a meaningful way that's going to change the world, that's where they start to lose me. All of the plans they've come up with in this kind of regard in the past has just ended up in money getting wasted, money that could have gone to something good in more of, of, of a real accountable situation. I can take everybody back to labor-sponsored venture capital funds. They had huge tax breaks for people to invest in the region. And I can tell you stories about companies who were pitching representatives from these funds who literally fell asleep in the presentation, woke up and wrote a $5 million check because they were mandated to get the money invested. Didn't matter what they invested in, the mandate was to invest the money. So my fear is that they're going to take money that could actually go towards a real green initiative and really make a difference. And they're going to waste this, this, this initiative they're for, for, for a, a line in a budget. I don't trust the bureaucracy to determine where the right way is to allocate that capital. And again, it was announced as, as a fairly small item in the budget. I didn't see a whole lot of detail in anything I read, and I admit I didn't read all 729 pages, but all of the, the writings I read about it seem to be kind of vague. We have a green bond. Ooh. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of this stuff is a little bit vague. So you're kind of using your imagination to some extent about what it looks like. There could be some real economic value in doing something like this, just strictly from the government's perspective, because if people know you're doing some type of social good with the, the money that you're lending them, and that's what a bond is, you're lending the government money. If people know that you're doing some type of social good or think that you're doing some social good, they might be willing to lend you that money at a lower interest rate. I don't know, I haven't seen that out there with these green bonds, but it may be, some way for the government to kind of backdoor and say, hey, you know, give us some money at, at a lower rate, which sure, I mean, just from the government's perspective, that, that can make some sense. But I mean, to your point, what's the, the best way to implement some of these climate initiatives? The government actually going out there and spending the money themselves on a project, we've been down that path a lot of times and it hasn't worked out too well. On the other hand, maybe they can provide some tax credits or other incentives, which I think have been floated in the budget as well, to help private enterprise innovate on that front. Because that's where I think we're going to get there on the climate front, is you help or incentivize private enterprise to innovate. And if you can do that, then I think we're going to get to the outcomes that we want Government spending a whole bunch of money on green initiatives, probably not going to get there. Well, for me, Josh, it says it's not as much about incentivizing something. It's just getting out of the way. Like, you know, because when it's, incentives can get pretty particular, 
And you know, there's there's a lot of case studies about companies that build themselves around incentive programs to hire the right people in the right location, and they kind of lose track of running a business, and pretty soon they wake up dead. Right. So you know, trying to incentivize specific activities is 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 dangerous because nothing happens in one dimension. If they could just get out of the way of companies that satisfy you know certain criteria as to what they're working on and let the company decide, like don't get specific on labor or get specific on how you know how they're spending the money, but as long as the objective they're working towards is green, then get out of their way. So I prefer to look at it as get the government out of the way rather than having them try to incentivize some particular narrow activity to address some perceived or actual problem in the system. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's a massive topic and we're definitely not going to solve the problem here today. And there's a lot of different sides to the argument. I was speaking with a portfolio manager earlier this week, one that we used to, to invest some of our money. And his comment was, well, it's fine that you put in this carbon tax system, but if I just sit on my hands as an enterprise now, yeah, I pay a little bit of extra money in the carbon tax, but I don't really have to do anything. He said, on the other hand, if you provide a carbon credit where if you're reducing the carbon that's out there you actually provide a payment or some incentive or a credit to that business that enterprise then there's a kick in the pants that hey I'm gonna go do something that's going to take some carbon out of the air help the environment in a positive way not just stay steady and something like that might be more effective as well so a million different ways to tackle the issue and that's why it's such a big one and such a tough one to, to to take care of. I lost track, but I think I'm throwing it to you. Is the next one your turn? Yeah, well, I'm going to stay on that theme of sort of climate and energy efficiency and all those things uh, and speak to something that may come up for, for some of our homeowners out there. There's a home retrofit interest-free loan that's been floated. So through CMHC, uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corp, they're going to provide up to $40,000 in an interest-free loan for people to replace their oil furnace or get better wall insulation or basement insulation, install high-efficiency water heaters, replace drafty windows or doors. So this is something, I don't know, how, how much is it actually going to trickle into the mainstream? Probably not that much, but if you're looking to do something like this, again, it may provide that incentive that, uh, that you need to do it. It's going to provide zero incentive. If you can borrow money at 1.5%, providing money for free is not that big of a difference. Unless they're going to allow people to qualify for this loan program who wouldn't qualify for normal credit, this is not going to change anything. This is just another talking point for them. It's not that big a difference. Zero or 1.5% interest, that's, that, that's just not motivation at all. This is your finance brain doing the actual math, Colin, but keep in mind, most people are not going to go through that exercise. They're going to say, oh, interest-free? Well, that's awesome. That's way better than I can get elsewhere. Let me let me jump at this. I'm cursed with the ability to do math, and frankly, I'm in people's lives to do math, and I'm going to do the math, and that's worthless. <laughs> yeah. You actually said one thing that there that scares me, though. If we're not doing any credit check whatsoever, then we're just giving out interest-free loans to people that don't qualify. Uh, yeah, that's government money that maybe we're throwing bad after good or good after bad, one of the two. Yeah, yeah no, and again, I didn't read any details, but I wouldn't surprise me if that's where it went. You're up. Disability tax credit. 
this is something that's legit. This is something that's going to affect a lot of people. This is something that is complicated, and it's something that has a big upside to understand. So they have, for the purposes of this presentation, they've made it more reasonable to qualify for disability tax credit, which is nice from a tax perspective, but it also opens up RDSPs, Registered Disability Savings Programs, which are huge, absolutely immense. So if you have a member of your family, and it can be anywhere with, from children to parents to brothers to sisters, if you have anybody that's suffering from some form of a disability where you've looked at the disability tax credit in the past and not qualified, because it was actually, to be honest, very difficult to get to qualify for, they've made it a little bit more meaningful and real to qualify for, and this opens up some real planning opportunities for people in these situations that should not be ignored because the, the, the disability savings programs are very generous. Now, I think what's part of what's gonna happen here is you're gonna see that there's gonna be many more people get involved in them, and you know they may take a look at the generosity of these plans and say, hey, you know we gotta be careful because again, this is gonna get expensive, but right here, right now today, this announcement, this part of the budget is an opportunity. So there's anybody, and again, they've gotten um, fairly broad in their definitions of you know, ADHD and, and things like that, that people are fully functioning with, like, you know, the, the, who can lead a rather full life may still qualify under this program now. Like the, the, there's an opportunity here that somebody who would look at who's, oh, they're fine, they're, they're basically good, fully functioning and they've got a full life. But again, because of their medical situation, they may actually qualify now, and it's worth looking at. Because this, this one counts. This one means something to those people, and it could mean huge. Yeah, not only does the disability tax credit get you some really significant tax credits, potentially save you some money on your tax return, but the RDSP, the disability plan that you're talking about, you can get two, three times the amount in government grants that you actually put into these accounts. So that's what you're talking about when you're saying that it, it, it is a real thing. This is a tremendous savings vehicle for, for those that, that qualify with a disability. And a lot of people out there use the RESP, the education plans, and yep. think, okay, yeah, I'm getting some good benefits there. Well, think you can be getting 10 times the benefits with an RDSP that you're getting with an RESP. So they can be very, very lucrative. There are a lot of moving parts with them. So reach out to professional if you're trying to go down this path because you probably need a little bit of help to get it off the ground and to make it function properly. All right, Josh, what else is on your list? Well, I, I just want to kind of end on one thing for, for me for my list, and that's, it's again, not something that's in the budget itself, but it's the overall debt levels. And we've been talking about this a lot, especially over the last couple of years. The debt is going to continue to grow. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't with this budget, but there has there, there's no real plan, there's no real path to start winding that down. It seems like the new budget has basically forecast deficits for the foreseeable future. And that's a bit of a challenge when we've been spending money hand over fist like a drunken sailor on, on shore leave over the last year and a half. And, and actually, you know, going back before that, before we really had this pandemic in place. So we've talked about it time and time again. It doesn't need to be a catastrophe, the current debt levels, but it's certainly going to have some longer term implications. And 
What those implications are, we don't know yet, but it probably means one of two things or maybe both of these things, maybe some inflation down the road or maybe some hindrance to growth, to GDP growth at some point down the road. Probably some combination of two. Uh, again, I'm not forecasting the apocalypse, but something to be aware of. And just to be clear, I mean, what we're talking about is the budget talks about the annual deficit, which is basically adding to the debt. And the budget going forward, as Josh pointed out, for the whole forecast is going to be adding to the budget. Now, we've got monster deficits now, and they're, they're going to get a little smaller uh, in the projection. But again, the Liberals are projecting for, you know, after the next election, which is a little optimistic. Uh, you know, so debt levels are, are going to be a thing to keep an eye on for sure. Not apocalyptic, but something to keep an eye on. Yeah, it's such a hard thing for society, I'm going to say society as a whole, because you're basically incentivized as a politician, as a government, to spend money to support people, because those people are going to re-elect you if they have more money in their pocket. But at some point, the music has to stop. And when, where, who is going to stop that music, we just don't know yet. Well, I'm going to end on a different note a bit more apocalyptic. $300 million was added to enforcement. They're coming after you. So there was not only that $300 million line, there's a couple lines in there totaling over $500 million towards various forms of enforcement. They're getting smart. So they're doing risk-based enforcement. So if your return triggers an algorithm, you're going to get a letter. And they just put another billion, half billion dollars on the table to write better letters. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a big part of this budget is you know, trying to crack down on tax cheats and they're using, you know, a pretty broad definition of that. So yeah, that's, that, that's a thing. And with the increase in, you know, electronic surveillance and, you know, tracking your passport as you go across the border, the fact that we've gone to a cashless society now, that you know, everybody's running everything through their credit cards, so there's a bank record of everything you're doing, more so than ever before. You know, be careful if you're playing in the gray areas or you're playing out of bounds. Um, yeah, this could be a thing. So, so keep an eye over your shoulder or just do the right thing and you got nothing to worry about. Yeah, and potentially get some professional help along the way if you have any questions because if that's you're something trying, that, uh, you, that's a nightmare you don't want. Speaking from experience, watching some of our clients deal with it, once they get a look sort of under the hood, so to speak, you know, they're not going to go away for a while. So Once you get on the CRA Christmas card list, you stay on their Christmas card list for a little bit, So, and you won't find it comfortable. Yeah, and they don't lose your address. No. Not, not, not when, not when they're, not when they want to keep a hold of it. No. Yeah, that's right. If you're expecting money from them, well, different story. Yeah. So that's a great overview of some of the the hot button topics in the federal budget for 2021. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more going on there. 739 pages is not a short document by any means, but. Those are the ones that we think are really going to come home and, and impact our clients, impact you, our listeners, at some point over the next little while. Or, hey, maybe they go away next year and uh, and it's, it's never a thing. But uh, a lot to keep in mind there uh, as we go forward. 
Well, I've started to lose interest in talking about this, so I'm pretty sure everybody else has lost interest in listening to us, Josh. So why don't we wrap it up, say thanks to everybody, and uh, reach out if you got any questions. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth, Inc. IA Private Wealth, Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth, Inc. operates.